Okay, the book of Galatians, um, as a, by way of uh, review, since it's, been, uh, since it's been a little bit, there is a situation uh, that, that uh, Paul finds himself in and his relationship to a collection of small churches that are, are young uh, and are under some, uh, not necessarily persecution, but some, some potential confusion because of uh, people who have come into the church teaching something slightly differently than what he taught when he was there. He, he describes it as a distortion in uh, Galatians chapter 1. So that distortion raises a question. How do we become right with God? Uh, Paul would have taught that that comes by faith in Jesus Christ, and people came after uh, Paul had left and said, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. It's good that we have a Messiah in Jesus Christ, but we need to make sure <coughs> that we couple that faith in Jesus Christ with obeying the law. And there comes the situation. How do we go about um, answering that in a letter form when Paul is not there to set up a debate. He's not there to actively engage it and in some kind of Bible class. He has to write a letter to try to make an appeal to uh, the answer to that question. So what we talked about uh, last time, if I go back, is Paul defending himself, uh, first of all. So in Galatians chapter 2, uh, this is his, his basic summary uh, in my mind. Um, I, Paul, uh, I met Jesus, and he gave me this gospel. Yes, I met him in a different way than the other apostles, but I was given the gospel, and I was given teaching from Jesus Christ up to the point of it made me qualify as an apostle. And years later, um, I've met with leaders of the churches. I've met with apostles. We've talked about the things that I was given by Jesus the things that I'm teaching, and there's nothing contradictory between what I have taught and what the apostles taught. I even met them in Jerusalem one time, uh, years and years later after I'd received the teaching from Jesus, years and years later after I'd begun teaching amongst the churches. I met with some of the apostles. I had a Gentile with me, and I want you to know two things about that. Well, I had a Gentile with me, and he was not persuaded to be circumcised. So he was not persuaded to try to follow the old law so he can be used as a case study. And also, we met and we discussed and we left aligned on the things that we were teaching together. Therefore, uh, my defense of myself is, is somewhat uh, settled, at least as much as I can to you in this, in this letter. Now, enough about me. Uh, Paul, Paul would maybe say, uh, let's talk about the gospel itself. So over the next couple of chapters, Paul's going to turn his attention away from himself and turn towards the gospel and defend the way that he's taught it to them compared to the way the Judaizers have taught it in a few ways. He's going to talk about things that are arguments or logical assessments that are personal in nature today, scriptural in nature today, and then we're going to talk about some practical and allegorical arguments that he has later in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. Chapter, um, chapter 3 
um, our own David Bunting. I can't remember if this was in a Bible class, David, or in a sermon. I wrote it down because um, it was sometime this year, and I've had the book of Galatians on my mind the entire uh, year. Galatians chapter 3 is the Reader's Digest on the scheme of redemption. David said that before. Now, the Reader's Digest may be a little bit of a dated uh, reference, but there is, there is a sense. I know some of you know what that means. It is a, it is a good summary you know, there's multiple chapters we may pick for a, a new Christian or somebody young in the faith. Where would we go to try and summarize some of the key points, some of the key principles of our own salvation? Uh, thus, this chapter would be, would be one of those, particularly us as Gentiles. There is parts of the Old Testament where, um, let me get to here. Maybe, there we go. There's parts of the Old Testament, I just referenced a couple of them, where if you read the prophets, there is an anticipation that the Gentiles would be a part of the kingdom of God, uh, which is really what we're, what we're after in this, in this uh, teaching that Paul has. Uh, let me just read a couple of them. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 3 and 4. A bent reed he will not break off, and a dimly lit burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not dis be disheartened or crushed until he establishes justice on the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So what God has and what whoever Isaiah is talking about, he is going to come and he is going to establish something that covers the earth, Jew and Gentile. Isaiah 49 verse 6 he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation shall reach to the end of the earth. So the idea that um, if you're reading the Jewish prophets and you're a Jewish man or woman, uh, you can get a sense of God is going to add Gentiles to the kingdom that we're a part of. So it's one of the ways that you can see a potential confusion or a potential opportunity for some, so for some gray area where these Judaizing teachers come in and distort the gospel. So while it is true that all the ends of the earth are going to have an opportunity to be a part of the kingdom of God, how does that happen? That is what Galatians chapter 3 and chapters 4 are about. So let's look at some practical ways uh, in the first part of the chapter, and then some scriptural ways uh, in, the last, in the last half of the chapter. If you want to make a comment, verse 9, verse 18, verse 25. Those are where I'm going to be taking my breath and calming down. So be mindful of that's where I'm going to be looking for some help. Verse 9, verse uh, 18, and verse 25. Let's begin. Chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 9. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and the works with miracles among us do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure 
that it is of those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed by you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. In Galatians chapter 1, when we started the... um, when we started the book a couple of weeks back, um, I made a certain claim. Somebody answered me really quickly here. I made a certain claim that Paul starts the book of Galatians a little differently than he starts the other books, uh, the other letter, letters that he writes. What is one of the characteristics of the way that Paul starts Galatians that is different than the way he starts other book, other letters? A little more harsh. Yeah, using words like foolish. Um, he doesn't do that with the Philippians and, and the Corinthians. He does a little bit with the, with the Corinthians, immediately jumping into some of, the, some of the problems he has. But here again, he's using very strong language. You foolish Galatians, there are, you know, that you are fooled, almost as if you have been um, entranced by a witch. Um, this, is, this is ridiculous uh, what, what is going on uh, in, in your in your midst, the word foolish, uh, I think, is meant to be uh, blunt. If someone is teaching up here, if Leland gets up here this morning, says, "Listen, I have something to say to you fools." Okay, whatever he's about to say, at least Leland has my attention, right? <laughs> uh, it's it's it is something I may have I may be interested in seeing what I've missed. Or interested in making some, some claim against what Lily may be saying uh, to try and check me by introducing me as a fool. So regardless, uh, it would be blunt. And regardless, you now have my attention. What do I do with that, with that attention? Um, every once in a while, uh, Paul does the same thing he does in verse 2 um, throughout some of his letters. And look, I, I just got one question, all right? Mr. Iconium, Mr. Lystra, I got, I got one thing to ask you, okay? Look at it again in verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Now, if we, if we go with the idea that receiving the Spirit, receiving the, the gospel message, whether it be the, the actual uh, fruits of the Spirit or the, the salvation that comes from the Spirit or the, the spiritual gifts from the Spirit, the, the relationship that you got with God... Think back like 30 minutes ago. This wasn't a long time ago. Think back to how you got that. Did you get it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And what's the answer? By hearing with with faith. Um, Otherwise, Paul would have spent time with them and teaching them and talking to them about the law. So to think that you got it from the law is ridiculous or is foolish. And... Um, verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the law? So if the answer is, you got it by the Spirit, that makes sense. That's how you initiated your salvation. But now you want to turn and be sanctified. You want to turn and be justified by something else. Why would you do that? Why would you be saved? Why would you be uh, justified by the Spirit? begin by the Spirit, and now be turning to something else uh, that is different. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. There has to be consistency. Um, 
I have a couple of uh, loose illustrations this morning. Here comes the first one. So, um, uh, Jill and I have taught our kids to swim. And by teaching, we mean we've sent them to a swim instructor uh, who's helped them to, to learn how to swim. And if you think back, uh, those of you who have learned how to swim, or maybe this may be a better illustration for those who don't know how to swim. If you were to jump into a lake or someone were to push you into a lake, what is the natural reaction if you have no knowledge of how to swim? It is to fight against the water because it is not my natural environment. I'm going to try to fight myself up against the water and uh, to try to keep myself afloat. And eventually you get exhausted and then you get into trouble. That's how uh, lots of people end up drowning. That's how lots of kids uh, end up drowning. Um, one of the things that our uh, swim instructor, um, one of the main fundamental principles that I could see him teaching, even young, young kids who can barely talk, is the principle of using the properties of water, its consistency, its density, to, to relax and help you. Relax. Learn how to float. Now, his, his claim is, but like, if you don't learn how to float but before you're like nine, eight or nine years old, it is, it is almost impossible to learn, sorry, um, it's almost impossible to learn uh, how to do it effectively. So it is a, a principle that he tries to teach, and, I, and I've seen him teach um, all ages, and it's something he teaches every time. Once you know the principles of relax, let the water work with you, um, you can end up doing different things. You can swim on your back. You can, you can freestyle swim. You can butterfly swim. Uh, you can become more effective in the water. You can't leave that first principle. You have to use that first principle. Uh, you can't learn it and then decide later on, I'm just going to try to fight the water. Um, end of a loose illustration. So, so think about the same thing here. You're saved by faith. This is what I taught you. Um, why when I leave would you think, you know what, Paul saved me by faith and I, I need something different now. I need to add something that's maybe a little bit different, a little bit better as in the keeping of the law to now um, keep my justification or keep my, my sanctification. Um, and then there's the obvious example that he provides of, of Abraham. We're going to touch on this a couple of times. I'm going to give it a light touch. Uh, right now, where Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You know, Abraham, the founding father. So if you reference Abraham, you definitely have my attention um, because I have a lot of pride in being from Abraham. Abraham is the first person to be identified, you know, vocally by God as being saved because of his faith. And Paul seizes upon that with the Galatians to show them that in this principle of salvation, even if you're suffering, I skipped over verse 4, even if you're suffering, which we know there probably would have been some suffering, we saw pieces of it in Acts 13 and Acts 14, we had Judaizers coming and trying to disrupt what was going on, even in those situations, um, you are saved by your faith. It's where you started and it's where you need to uh, continue from. So summary of this first nine verses, here comes the pause. So if you've got a, a microphone, Dale, get ready. The means for justification is the same as the means for sanctification. You don't come to Jesus one way and then try to stay with Jesus or in Christ a different way um, through the obeying of the law. 
And Abraham saved by faith. You uh, who are teaching, who are learning from these Judaizers, or you who may have a, a, a root in Judaizing or, or in Jewish culture, recognize that your founding father also adhered to this principle of, being, uh, of having his faith uh, save him. All right. Comments, questions, thoughts from uh, the first nine verses of Galatians chapter 1. Three, sorry. Go ahead, John. showed his approval reminded me of John chapter 9 when Jesus healed the blind man and he'd been born blind and been I think he was about 40 years old but he did it on the Sabbath so the Pharisees were upset with him he healed on the Sabbath and they they called the formerly blind man in and says who is who is this guy speaking to you who is this guy and where is he from Right. And they're the upper crust, the experts in the law and all that. And this poor blind man was probably very lowly, uneducated. But he could see clearly, he says, it's a funny thing. You don't know who he is and where he's from because he couldn't do these things if God wasn't with him. Right. And see, it's the same point Paul is making here. God yeah. has shown his approval. Oh, well said. The, the miracle that... You reminded my mind of it, in, I think it's in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus heals the paralytic, but he forgives his sins first. And it's like, okay, who is, like, the same, same, kind of, same kind of logic. Who is this man who says he can forgive sins? And let me tell you, you know, is it easier to forgive sins or is it easier for me to say rise up and walk? Well, it's easier to forgive sins because you can't see that. I don't know if that's authority. I don't know if that's correct. But if I can make a man walk, now I know that it comes from it comes from God, right? Good comment, John. Who's got the mic? I can't see. Oh yes, Leanne. I just wanted to say um, these Christians—they were young Christians, and they had just started off. And the one reason he's frustrated with them is because he probably just got done um, preaching these principles to them, and they have so quickly forgotten. And that that reminds me of. Um, when a person's first baptized, they need to have help learning the scriptures and they need to have help learning what to do, especially if they come out of a worldly situation. Because if they don't, they are so easily um, snared and go, go back into what is familiar with them. And so Paul's just trying to remind them of who they are, where they come from, why it was important to do do what God tells them to do, mm -hmm. because in that time, especially with the persecution and stuff, it was so easy to turn back. Sure, that's right, that's right. And even as, like, even in the persecution, the the, the Jewish leaders are sort of giving them an out. Like, here's how you get out of this persecution: you come and become part of the law keepers. Let me build off of Leanne's comment a little bit. Guard against the midstream uh, horse change. So you've got a, an opportunity to be saved and justified by God and, and over our life. I mean, we know this hasn't, been a, this hasn't been 30 minutes. I was speaking in the hyperbole uh, there um, a little bit ago. It's been a few years. Uh, it's easy to um, try to 
pivot away from pure faith in Jesus Christ. In this case, it's a pivot to trying to keep the law. But we could have this tendency too if we're not, if we're not careful. In um, one of Micah's favorite books, The Screwtape Letters, one of the things that um, the, the, the fictitious uh, demon who's tempting the Christian is trying to do is trying to get him to tie his faith, tie his belief to something that is not necessarily you know, Jesus. Our tendency to, to try and find our justification in how well we raise our children or how deep red the state is that we live in or how large the churches that we attend. The, the ability for us to, to tie our justification to different things other than faith in Jesus Christ is something we also have to check ourselves against. Don't change horses uh, midstream. Let's remember how our faith came to us, how we were saved. It's the same today, it's the same tomorrow, and it's the same until we die, until Jesus uh, comes back. Anybody else on uh, the first, uh, right here, Dad. First nine verses. <clears throat> So I think just going off of what you just mentioned about mixing in, you, you see that in a lot, and you've seen it over a number of decades and past, especially today, as they mix things in with faith in Jesus to justify the means of what they're doing. You see that around, especially around the holidays, okay. um, with, with intertwining of the different pagan festivals that were entwined years and years ago and you see that today oh it, and and they put on their signs or they're put out in their messages mm -hmm. in the name of jesus or something you know trunk or treat for jesus or whatever right. those type of things and they do that they blend it in with faith in christ to justify what they're doing that is not in accordance with god's will sure and i, and I think one if i could add something briefly to what really nate's good comment if you think about the things that we've intertwined uh, and through looking at examples from local churches. Think about the Lord's Supper, right? It is an intertwining of our relationship with Jesus Christ. But what, what is the purpose of that? Every week to do two things that are meaningful in that, in that activity. Personal salvation remembrance, and also we do it as a collective, showing that we are united together uh, in this belief. And it's something we do every week. Um, to try and to try and restore that recognition of where our salvation um, originated. Okay, uh, the next nine verses, verse ten of Galatians three. For as many are, as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Excuse me, under a curse. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them." And now that no one is justified by the law before God, it is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that he would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I'm saying is this. The law, 
which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Okay, couple of couple of things I want to draw out uh, here. Uh, the first couple of verses, verses uh, 10 through 12. Let me go ahead and put this uh, up here so you can, if I speak too fast, uh, at least you know what I, was, what I was thinking. This is what I was thinking over the next six minutes of the things that I say. Okay. The first couple of verses here, salvation is, a, if it's by law, it's a matter of achievement. Did you earn it? Okay. There is a stipulation there that if you break it, there's a curse and there's a punishment to that. Um, you have to follow, excuse me, the, the entire law. There is a, an initiation, perhaps. Uh, there's an initiation talked about in the form of circumcision. Um, what, what the circumcision is talked about in Romans 4. It's, it's, it's spoken against in Acts chapter 15. Um, but it is, a, is an initiation uh, activity. I was talking to, uh, to John about this a little bit um, a while, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I had a thought after talking to you, John. I'm going to share it with you and, and the group now. Um, if you think about, <laughs> if you think about circumcision, um, and if you're an, an, uh, a new Christian, if you're if you're willing to follow the law in that regard, it is a an initiation to something else you're signing up for. Think about uh, Mr. John joining the military. John uh, took an oath, signed some papers. Uh, did, a, did a small kind of short-term act to give his life to the military for a certain regard. That one small task made John subject to other demands of the military that were not just sign this piece of paper and take this oath. John was then told when he was allowed to wake up and when he was allowed to shower and when he was allowed to eat and what he was allowed to eat, right? Same happens with circumcision, or same happens with taking on the law. If you take on circumcision, you are now subject to a lot of things uh, because of that initiating act. All of them are, all of them are binding. If you miss one, then you are subject to the entire curse of the law. In the midst of this, he mentions uh, Jesus. Why mention Jesus here? Somebody with maybe a short, quick answer. Verses 13 and 14. He's discussing the curse of the law, and then he mentions Jesus. Why is Jesus an important reference here? He, right, he is a solution in a couple of ways. Solution that he fulfills, that he keeps the law. And then what else does he reference? What happens to Jesus? He bears the curse. Even though he is able to keep the law, he suffers public humiliation that's talked about in, oh dear, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, uh, there is a reference to uh, public humiliation to those uh, who may forsake the law. And you imagine being hung on a tree. You're out in public, you're exposed, you're vulnerable. And the reason that you're there is because you've disobeyed God. There is great shame in that. And imagine having that be a part of your life and not being guilty of any of the law. And imagine being so bloody you can barely see straight. 
but you can barely breathe on that tree. And imagine at the same time, you've got people that you tried to appeal to in your past and they're hurling abuses at you and they're gambling for your clothes. It's the ultimate symbol of public shame. Um, so yeah, the law has a curse, but you, Galatian Christian, don't have to take that curse because there is a single seed of Abraham uh, that did. If you look at uh, verses 15 through, through 18, uh, to, to me, the, his basic premise is there is a long, thorough Mosaic covenant. I got it. But remember, 430 years before that, there was a much simpler and deeper and important covenant established not between Moses and God, but between Abraham and God that was not based on all the laws uh, that Abraham had to keep. It was based on Abraham's faith. That covenant happened first, and God makes a claim that because it happened first, it takes priority. It is a covenant between um, Abraham and God. It cannot be modified or set aside to be something later. And it is ultimately fulfilled in verse, uh, verse 16, not by seeds of Abraham, but by a seed of Abraham. That is Christ. The blessings of God are promised and, and dependent upon one person. The promises of God are not dependent upon the nation of Israel. That has to be important because that means you don't have to become a part of the nation of Israel. If the promises of God are based upon a single seed of Abraham, then we can become a part and tie to that single person, Jesus Christ, rather than trying to tie ourselves to the nation of Israel. Does that make sense? Because that's Paul's claim. Again, Paul is saying some very powerful, important things here in the early New Testament uh, history that are uh, important also to them and, and to us. So what's my, that's probably about seven minutes. What was I trying to say? The law could not bring a blessing from God. It could only bring a curse. The law could not reverse the promises of Abraham for a few reasons. Christ bore the curse of the law publicly. Abraham's covenant came first. So the law of Moses cannot change it. It takes preeminence. And the promise is fulfilled through a single seed in Christ. You don't have to bind yourself to the nation of Israel because that's not how the promise is fulfilled. You bind yourself to a man, a single person who fulfilled the promise. So we've pivoted a little from personal applications. You remember how you received the law from me? Excuse me. You remember how you received salvation from me? You remember how I told you where it came from and how your experience is? Now we've pivoted from the personal experience to now a scriptural experience, uh, um, a scriptural logic uh, that he carries through the rest of the chapter. Deep breath. Any comments or questions on verses 10 through 18? John again. Hopefully I was right with my military reference. Let's see here. <laughs> he makes a point about what what we would call it, he calls it a covenant, we might call it a contract. You sign a contract with somebody, everybody signs it, then you don't go back later and say, you know, say I'll mow your grass once a week through the summer for $50 every time. <laughs> and then later on say, well, you know, I think I want 75. No, we signed the contract. Mm -hmm. You can't change it once we've signed it. And he made that covenant with Abraham. Mm -hmm. 
That's right. And 430 years later, he says the law doesn't invalidate that contract. The contract is still there. That's right. That's right. Couple of couple of applications. Grace isn't new. So sometimes the God of the Old Testament was a law, was a God of law and wrath. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace. This passage, again, the Reader's Digest of our scheme of redemption. One of the principles here is grace from God is not new. Remember what we did to be a part of this covenant that between Abraham and God. We did nothing. Abraham did nothing. God selected him uh, based on his faith. Abraham didn't have a hundred years of service to some law to God in order to earn credit for that. Um, to now be ratified into a covenant with Abraham. Um, grace uh, is how we receive the covenant back then, and grace is how we receive it uh, now. Legalism is rooted in rebellion. Legalism is rooted in rebellion. Um, Paul has told us that the law operates on works, and when we turn from grace to the law, we are turning to try and do something that we can rely on. Um, think back even to Abraham's life for a moment. Abraham with Hagar and Ishmael, which we'll cover a little more uh, next week in, in Galatians chapter 4. Why did Abraham try by his own efforts to bring a son through whom he would have the blessings rather than trust God? Was it because he did not find you know, God trustworthy you know there, there is an opportunity for even us to to be in, in a legalistic way rebel against uh, the Abrahamic covenant uh, that we get through faith in Jesus Christ sometimes we try to take matters into our own hands even when we have God's promises to the contrary um, sometimes we worry there's multiple examples in the New Testament I just picked one um, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus mentions a few of them. And one of them mentions is worry. Why are you worried? Um, he said, because we do not find God and his promises worthy of our trust, uh, perhaps. So we need to worry, therefore find something to do with our worry and take away the need uh, to rely on God. Something to think about. Anybody else? Oh, right here and right there. Just thinking an idea of, of, of covenants and contracts, when you think about them being established, and especially with with man's nature, I think in a lot of senses, we're, we're, we, we like to break contracts or break covenants. And I, I think, you know, we see this in, in Paul's writing, is he's reminding them of that covenant or slash contract that was made, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. we quite often as individuals, we need to be reminded of the of the commitments that we've made. And but then also the that there's consequences for breaking those contracts, and, and especially in, in our society today, you see it so much, so prevalent in sports today. The contracts mean absolutely nothing anymore because the athletes they they sign a contract for five years, and then at the end of three years, they try to force a trade because they don't no longer want to honor their contract. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no consequences for that. But in, with with when it comes to God's covenant. You know, although we were reminded for it, there's also consequences sure. for breaking that, that covenant or contract. And, and that's something I think that here Paul is, is attempting to, to 
get through to them. Sure, I, I think I think so. I think so, Brian. I was just still thinking back about the the comments on Abraham, and it made me think back to John chapter eight and just the, what you've already mentioned about the way that they had, in some ways, conflagrated Abraham and the law. And you think about the, the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees' reaction in John chapter 8, when they're like, hey, you know, we've got the law. We're Abraham's descendants, you know, and how irate they were when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Mm-hmm. And here, I mean, just think about the hammer blow, like, hey, guys, by the way, Abraham was a Gentile. Hey, by the way, this was right. pre-circumcision. Hey, by the way, this is before right. the law. And just for those that were seeking to bring these Christians back to the law mm-hmm. and the way that they have intertwined, as we talked about earlier, He's just completely separating those two things, and, and that, would, that would have to be a pretty big blow to their, their argument. Right. No, well said. And I think that's both comments together. I think it's one of the reasons, again, Paul is trying to answer active Judaizing teachers, and so he's got to make powerful, meaningful points that hit them sort of in the face. So, Now, there's a natural question you may have in your mind, and we're about to answer it, if it's the right one, I hope. Uh, it's the uh, question that's in verse 19. So let's read verses 19 through 25 and try to wrap up a little quickly. Why the law then? It was added because of the transgressions, having been ordained through the angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Okay, so if we don't have to follow the law, then what was the point of the law? Um, we have, that, has, that is a very logical question because there's people who are in our midst in, this, in these churches that used to have it as part of their everyday lives. So quick, quick recap about where we were. Um, the curse of the law was pronounced on all men, was born by Jesus Christ, So we don't have to bear the burden of the law. The Abrahamic covenant proceeds and is priority over the Mosaic covenant. And the promise to Abraham was not fulfilled in the nation of Israel. It was fulfilled in the man, Jesus Christ. So with all having said all that, why the purpose of the law? It was added in verse 19. It was added after Abraham came. Because of the transgressions, um, I'm going to tell you how I read these, this section. I'm certainly open to, to feedback or, or your thoughts, too. It is, um, it is added to dramatically display the depth of man's sin. It is best to understand the law as something that God used to, to show man that its sin was evident. I'm going to offer a second loose illustration. So in the business that I'm in, 
we have, sometimes we have to check for leaks on pipe, on vessels, on equipment, and things like that. And you would think we have a very sophisticated uh, system, but we don't. We have like spray bottles with kind of half water and half Dawn dish detergent. And what we do is we spray like connections and joints and stuff. And what happens, you find a very small leak. What happens? The Dawn bubbles up and it's very evident. Is that spray bottle and that water and that Dawn dish detergent causing leaks? No, it is revealing where a leak is. The law is, Paul has to find a reason for the law to exist. And one of the reasons the law exists is that we show a divine purpose to reveal sin, not remedy sin. That's the, that's the point of the people who are preaching in Galatians chapter 1. They're trying to use the law to remedy sin. Paul is saying it's not here to remedy sin. It is here to reveal uh, what sin is. The second thing that the law does is it is, it is a mediator, verse, end of verse 19, until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. So it is a mediator. It is a temporary provision for man's sin until the permanent cure came in the person of Jesus Christ. It had temporary abilities to provisionally help those who sought to follow it until the seed of the promise uh, came. Last loose uh, example uh, for the morning. So everyone has, well, maybe, maybe you do, hopefully you do. You've got a spare tire on your car. Um, that spare tire is designed to do what? Um, if you read some of your owner's manuals, if you read some of the, some of the markings on the tire, it is, it is there for you to drive on, not very fast, not very long. It has a purpose. It has a provisional purpose. Um, and the law of Moses is like the spare tire. It has a function, and it will help you get through to the next place, to the next promises uh, that God made through Abraham. But it is temporary. It is temporary. So, to conclude my, my loose uh, examples, the law is like an x-ray. It is not causing a broken bone. It is revealing the broken bone, and it is a spare tire. It is a provision that will serve you if you follow it until it is no longer necessary when the one seed, Jesus Christ, has come to, to fulfill it. And, and Paul tries to answer, I'm going to try to do this quickly, tries to answer a potential contradiction. Well, how is that related to the promises of God? Verse 21, how can it be, does that make the law contrary to the promises of God? And he says, no. No, uh, the law, again, had a, had a temporary uh, provision to help so they can impart, um, so they would know how to, to behave, to lead themselves to God, and ultimately see God in, in, the, in the person, uh, Jesus Christ. And then very, I'm sorry, very quick, I'm trying to leave you all a little bit of time to, to comment if you'd like. There's... A, a, another example that is not my illustration, it's Paul's illustration in verses 23 through 25, where the law is a, a tutor, a law is a guide, a law is a guardian. If you're going to inherit a billion dollars and you're my son Elijah's age, seven years old, there is a multitude of problems with that, right? Because he is not ready to do a lot of things, let alone um, 
own a billion dollars. So there is guardians, there is tutors who are entrusted with that to help him. Um, and in the meantime, he is taught discipline. We teach our kids curfews and bedtimes and brushing their teeth so that they will mature to a point where they're ready to receive a huge inheritance. Thus, the purpose of the old law to the Jews. It's not going to fully give them the magnitude of the inheritance that comes in salvation in Jesus Christ, but it is going to help them through acts, through activities, through feasts, point them in a way, mature them in such a way that they are ready to receive uh, Jesus Christ. So it's not that the law had no purpose, and I'm saying you wasted your time with it, uh, Jew Jewish people. I'm saying this was the purpose. Both of these purposes are now provisional and, or, or are provisional, and I'm telling you now they are gone. Okay, I left you a couple of seconds. I will hold back the troops. If you've got anything you'd like to say, any, any uh, comments from the group? Thank you very much to those who did participate uh, and made some comments this morning. We're going to pick up at the end of Galatians uh, 3 and cover through Galatians 4 uh, next Sunday.